Welcome to Just a GP. It has been a little while since we've released an episode and my name is Ashley Broomfield. I'm joined by Charlotte Hespy and Rebecca Hoffman. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Emily Amos joining us, who is a GP, meditation and yoga teacher. And we're going to talk with her about her journey on setting up her own business in a slightly different way. But before we begin getting into the crux of all of that fun stuff, can we start with a highlight of the week with you, Emily? Highlight of the week for me, I think it has been managing to pick up my kids from school four out of five days this week, which every time I do it, it makes me smile. (laughs) I love that one. Beck. My highlight, I'm trying to frame my mind that it's a highlight, is all of this rain that we've had has meant that we've had to do things slightly out of the box. So whereas we'd normally go to the park, instead we've been inside doing some watercolour paintings or we've been able to explore a few different things at home that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do because of all of this torrential rain. And Charlotte? Uh, well, mine is a one of those interesting emergent from COVID. I've actually been on an aeroplane. I went down to Launceston in Tasmania for a work meeting for four days. And so not only did I have an amazing time in Tasmania, and I'm green with envy with anybody who lives and works down there, but I actually overcame my sort of the the COVID-induced anxiety about sitting on a plane with all these other people and then coming back on a plane with all these people. And so far it doesn't look like I got COVID, so I'm pretty happy. Nice. Soon you can be like myself, Charlotte, and have super immunity after having triple vaccination and then an infection. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't want to have to have the infection, Ash. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like a superhero now, so (laughs) like (gasps) breathing all there. Anyway, I shouldn't say that. I could still get infected with a different variant. There's one coming, Ash. There's one coming. I'll I'll like roll with the roller coaster for now and just enjoy the fun ride until then. My highlight of the week was that I'm opening up my own little space in the next couple of months and we did a staff development day on Monday at my parents' little granny flat, which is all in nature. And it was just such a highlight for me because we started the day with like a grounding meditation and tea drinking And then we set our intentions and talked about, you know, the things that we bring to the space. And then we did some embodiment practices, went for a swim at the beach and chatted about some stuff over lunch and then got into the nitty gritty in the afternoon. It was just so nice to have like a staff development day where I could just do whatever I wanted to do. And I wasn't bound by anyone else's like requirements for how the day should run or how many hours need to be spent on X and the primary aim was to get a bit of an understanding and team building. So it was really nice to be able to do it in that way. So that was my highlight. So Emily, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story as a GP who's taken a slightly different path? Bit of a winding road. Yeah. (laughs) I came to general practice training straight away. 
I sort of thought about a lot of specialties and then realised I liked too many to pick one and so picked general practice as my one, <laughs> which is kind of like the mixed bag of, of all other things you do. And I didn't realise it when I first came to the training how much I would enjoy being able to do so many things without restrictions placed on me. And I've come to really appreciate that probably a bit more in the past few years, but I'll come back to that point. So I started general practice training in 2012 and I actually had a couple of kids during my training. So I sort of, I lost a cohort every sort of year or so. And by the time I fellowed in 2017, I wasn't sort of with any contemporaries within general practice. And in hindsight, I think that sort of really probably weighed heavier on me from the very beginning than I realised. And I, I sort of, I'm reflecting on this now because I actually completely burnt myself out in 2019. And when I look back, I've sort of pieced together some precipitants that I've sort of tried to learn some lessons from in the last few years. And that professional isolation was definitely one that I probably felt more acutely than I gave myself permission to be feeling. So I worked in general practice for a few years. I'm also a board certified lactation consultant. So I'd started to niche my practice down to purely working in breastfeeding medicine in sort of 2017, 2018, and then into 2019. And then in 2019, as I mentioned, I actually came to a fairly unceremonious <laughs> halt and, and had ended up having a couple of panic attacks, completely knocked me for six. I'd never had any sort of mental health issues in my past. I'd never really felt I suffered from anxiety of any sort, but I just had this immediate sense that my body was physically just giving up. And I actually then took some time off general practice uh, or breastfeeding medicine by that stage and spent sort of the end of 2019 being a mum, trying to practice the mindfulness that I'd been practicing for years, but obviously wasn't able to mitigate my burnout with. And then I came back and I've been doing surgical assisting and a variety of other things in the last couple of years and I've really come to build up my mindfulness as part of my professional life now because it's become so integral to my recovery from burning out but also just how I live my life. So that's sort of, I guess, not really in a nutshell, <laughs> but that's the bones of it. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So right now, um, the main thing that I'm doing is I'm, so I'm teaching mindfulness in a variety of different ways. I've been tutoring first year medical students in mindfulness and healthy lifestyle at Monash Uni for the last few years with um, Professor Craig Hassard. And that comes around every year. And I've got to say, it's the best time of year. <laughs> I love doing that. The medical students are just amazing. And more and more medical students are coming through with an understanding of mindfulness from their schooling. So it is amazing what young people are doing in terms of practicing mindfulness and living mindfully these days. And I would just wish that I had half of the experience that they have now back when I was in their position, but, you know, <laughs> live and learn. And then I'm also running my own mindfulness trainings and classes, mostly online at the moment, thanks to COVID. But we've been very fortunate. I've got a, a company that I started with a colleague of mine who's also a GP. Dr. Lucy Burns, and we run CPD-approved mindfulness and well-being retreats for doctors. 
So we've actually got RACGP CPD accreditation for um, Category 1 points for the approved accredited activity. And we're able to take doctors out of their sort of professional lives, remove them from their day-to-day lives for a few days and really immerse them in meditation, mindfulness, learning a little bit about, little bit about self-compassion. And then we can sort of add in other elements of things like being a mindful and compassionate leader, communication skills that can help with them in their day-to-day work. And it all sort of centres around just helping people to be or helping doctors to be a bit more mindful and self-aware. I'd love to explore just a little bit, if I could, the experience of you being a registrar and then feeling certainly in retrospect, but maybe not being so aware of of how powerful that was, being socially isolated as the registrar. Because I'm very interested in, I mean, I think general practice is a very lonely profession in that we actually operate on our own in our room with the patient. And yes, you know, that's, I love that because I'm a people person and I love having the interactions with my patients. But there is that element of loneliness in terms of, you know, if you don't have a good system of sharing what's going on or social networking of what you do with the stuff that happens in the room because so much happens and there's so much emotional tank filling or emptying. So I'm just interested now that you've got, you know, those few years of retrospectoscope reflection on board and then to that sort of the first two years of your practice where you did burn out, what things do you think you could have done to look after yourself and or do you think it was due to that you were just operating as a GP in isolation and could it have been built up better in terms of how you debriefed and socially networked as you were going along? Yeah, no, they're they're all really good points. And I think I've spent a lot of time reflecting on exactly those points. And I guess when it comes to burning out for myself, you know, at the time, it took me a long time to accept that that's what was going on for me, because I felt like burnout is this thing that happens because of institutional factors. You know, there's big systemic factors that then cause you to, to have excessive demands in your workplace. And I thought, well, I'm I'm in general practice. I'm a sole trader. I'm a subcon. You know, I, I I'm on my own. I don't have those issues, and so I didn't actually accept that's what was happening. But if I look back, there's certain personality traits that I have within myself, and perfectionism is certainly one. Just having unrealistic standards of myself and not actually giving myself permission to be struggling. I had this sort of self-identified role as being the healer of others rather than the person who received help. And all of these things really probably created the perfect soup within me. And then the professional isolation that I experienced by having my kids during general practice training, which in and of itself is or can be quite isolating because from GPT-1, we're essentially in a room on our own, even though we've got very hands-on supervisors, we're still fairly isolated when we look at other specialty training programs in their early registrar years. So I had these issues within me and then sort of that isolation that created a bubble around me and it just served to amplify, I think, a lot of those personality traits that I had within myself. And so, yes, I think there's certainly things that I could have done in the lead up to burning out that could have mitigated the point I got to and perhaps how I felt in the, in the lead up to that. 
How I could have done that, I'm not entirely sure because in hindsight, I I completely lacked the self-awareness to see how distressed I was. I just kept telling myself, you're just being a perfectionist. You just need to do this. You just need to do this. And in fact, all of my supervisors, when I think back, if I sort of had, if I felt like I was worrying a bit much and went to them, the first thing they'd say was, oh, you're a great doctor. You're an amazing doctor. You don't need to worry. Just don't worry about it. And the problem with that, just don't worry about it as sort of go-to, I guess, reassurance was that it actually was just the Band-Aid over these other issues that were going on inside for me. And I think exploring my own self-awareness, my own relationship with myself, my self-identity, my own ego has been amazing and completely transformational in who I am as a person and what sort of permissions I give myself, you know, I decided that jumping straight back into clinical general practice in my recovery wasn't going to be helpful. And the me of a few years ago would never have given myself permission to make that decision. It was move forward at all costs. So I think that lack of self-awareness on my own part, it it was a hard lesson I had to learn. I'm not sure how I could have learned it faster though. Emily, I just wanted to say thank you for being so open and honest with us here today, particularly about something that is often really hard for people to talk about. And particularly, as you say, I'm sure there's many doctors out there listening who identify with unrelenting standards or perfectionistic traits and, you know, being the person who's okay and, you know, is able to get on with their stuff. So you you also mentioned something about how when you sort of thought about it or you thought burnout was more around system-based factors and that there was a lot in it that you thought was more personal-based factors. And then I I sort of heard you talk about how when you would go to a supervisor and talk about your concerns or worries and there was sort of a reassurance and it was like, oh, you're fine. Like, And in many ways to me listening to that, I felt that that potentially could have been a missed opportunity for normalization and validation that wow yeah this job is really hard and it can be really hard to carry this uncertainty and or carry the weight of trying to do everything right and the risk of something going wrong and making a mistake and what that potentially looks like do you think there's any learnings that you have for how other people around you might have picked up on this or supported you in a different way or you know, particularly for, say, training organisations, if we do have registrars who are completing their training in the midst of having children and an extended period of time where they don't feel like they have a cohort of colleagues that they're going through the, the same stages with, you know, do you sort of have any idea around what could have been in place to support you better from a system perspective? So I think probably twofold on that. One, I think the peer support that is outside of, say, a study group or anything, I think would be really important. And I actually tried to join a Balint or Balint, I don't know how it's pronounced, (laughs) group in the months before I ended up actually burning out. And unfortunately, my local one was full. There were no places. And when I think back, that would have been a perfect opportunity probably to highlight some things in a really gentle way about how I practiced medicine that might have, you know, supported reflection I think is is really important. And sometimes when you're talking to a supervisor, it's a bit hard to reflect in a way that is, I guess, 
compassion I don't know if compassionate's the right word but you know when there's someone who is actually in charge of the academic side of your performance maybe having someone who's more in charge of the sort of pastoral side or I don't know what a good word for it is but having that sort of support as separate from your academic support would I think be quite helpful whether that is in the form of a supervisor or actually probably even better a small group reflection but then the second part of that I think what I've come to sort of reflect on in the last couple of years is that there's so this idea that we all experience empathy in the same way, which is something that I've really come to feel quite passionately about because I remember being in medical school and having these communication skills classes where people were taught how to how to show empathy to a patient and how to develop rapport, how to, you know. And I used to sit there and think, gosh, it's crazy that people have to be taught this. I can't believe people have to be taught this because the way that I am as a person is very much hard on my sleeve. It's all out there. And that's just who I am. You know, that's neither better nor worse than anyone else in the world. That's just who I am. So the empathy side of things I had in spades. But then by the same token, I don't feel throughout our training, if we have this sort of understanding that there's people who experience empathy in different ways, some are very much at the end of the spectrum we might identify as empaths, very deeply feeling it's not just a tap they can turn on and off. Well, how do we support them in the training? Because they're not actually feeling things the same way as the people who can switch it on and off or who are able to compartmentalise it exactly the same. And I think when I look back, a lot of my supervisors, a lot of my sort of dealings through training and with contemporaries, I didn't actually see or speak to a lot of people who, who well, at least voiced that they were struggling in the way I was. And it was, as you say, really struggling sometimes just to not take that full weight of feeling of everything, the worries, the carrying the patients with you. It's not that I sort of, you know, I'm trying to say that I care more than anyone else. It's just that I think there are people who experience empathy differently and that it, it just isn't something they can switch on and off. And so we should be focusing on how we teach these people to care differently rather than saying, oh, no, just go home and have a good sleep. Stop thinking about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> They're just sort of platitudes that don't actually help on the ground. Can I uh, reflect at that point? Thanks for sort of what you've added to the sort of information at this point. But I also think there's an element that some people aren't very good at filling up their emotional tank because they maybe maybe it's a deeper one in the first place I I mean I don't know um but I certainly see this a lot people who seemingly are very resilient and have those skills as you say in spades and then yet therefore fail to do some of those steps that protect them from burnout and I suppose there's that element of that burnout is different from mental illness, but we actually think, you know, like we, a lot of us think that they're the, the same, oh, you know, that that's there. And so you sort of don't necessarily recognise the signs because you think that you, you're fine and you can deal with it without actually understanding what is happening in that whole burnout stuff and what it is that might need to be done that's quite different from just the whole thing about staying mentally well. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think I became really acutely aware of that in the fact that 
within a month or so of actually completely stopping clinical work, and this was sort of when it was June 2019, all of a sudden I was sleeping through the night. I was a different person and I wrote a blog post around that time saying it felt to me like like the Dr. Fuse got flicked in my fuse box but everything else was unaffected. So I could be at home, be a mum, I could be a sister, I could be a wife, I could be all those things and I didn't have those lingering sort of aftershocks that you might associate with really significant anxiety or depression. I mean I wasn't functioning at my perfect or my ideal but it really was just so profoundly affecting my ability to practice medicine that it made me sort of reflect and think well maybe you need to give yourself permission to be struggling at practicing medicine maybe there's it may not be there's huge systemic issues but maybe it's actually medicine at the moment that is the system that's that's burning you out and if we take that out of the equation then how are you functioning and, and what's going on for you? And that actually allowed me then to do a lot of self-reflection. And I was very fortunate, of course, to be supported in that by my friends and family and colleagues. Charlotte, are you saying what I think you're saying? And check me on this, because I had a similar thought about the people that we might describe who can switch it off or compartmentalise or just not worry about it in that it's not necessarily that those people are dealing with the responses of what they're experiencing in clinical practice differently or better. It's that potentially they're still taking on a lot of that load but not recognising it to the same degree and those people still end up burning out as well. Yep. I think that there is a some of the work I've been trying to do in terms of understanding what might happen for some of the burnout stuff is indeed that is that we have protective mechanisms it's a bit like when I think about for me a lot of families that have experienced trauma you know families of children and I remember being really struck by I had this family of six children and each of the six children was quite significantly differently affected by the trauma that they had all experienced as children. Now we know that our memories of childhood are often quite different but that whole thing about what it is that you, that family was the first family that really made me think about the differences in which that we respond to the same stimuli. So this was they all had the same genetic sort of coding, they'd all had similarly awful childhood yet you know one had ended up being a drug addict in jail, significantly impaired. One was just, you know, my patient. She was, you know, like quite amazing. She had actually removed herself from her childhood trauma, got herself a scholarship the other side of the country, been able to find a job to pay for her sort of board while she had the scholarship to attend this very good boarding school, got herself to uni and obviously damaged in a number of ways from her childhood but still had this other capacity to be able to function as a normal normal in inverted commas are we any of us normal function at a really high level so I was then sort of really interested about some of our emotional responses and and why I sort of often call it that sort of emotional tank because I think that there's some quite interesting evidence around some people who are more sensitive and attuned 
and therefore the way in which you need to, they can do a huge amount, but actually what happens is that they empty the tank completely without realising that it's empty and then it all goes boom, right, you know, versus other people for whom as it's draining out, they're more, far more aware of it and, in fact, they like functioning when the emotional tank is full and don't actually notice anything different, you know, like versus the person has to empty it right out before they realise that they need to do it. So Different levels of sensitivity to the depletion yeah, yeah. as in noticing that you're actually getting depleted as you're getting depleted and then it becoming a problem versus someone who doesn't realise it's getting depleted and feels like everything's okay and sweeps everything under the rug and then all of a sudden it's like... That was 100% me. I think you described really quite interestingly, Emily, is because you function so well, no one else recognises that you're depleting either. And, you know, especially in the doctor fraternity, we all do have very high expectations of ourselves. And every day we're in this responsible position of taking on other people's stuff that we're, you know, we're giving them counselling to, we're, we're assisting them as they navigate that difficult pathway and bad news, good news, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so there's a total lack of permission that we're actually allowed to have the same stuff or that in any way we need anybody else to assist us. And so then with our colleagues, it's really difficult, you know, like they say something and you sort of, oh, yeah, no, you're okay, you can keep going, you know, you're really great without ever actually going diving down. And Emily's a person. Emily actually needs to be nurtured. She's got young children. She's, you know, just come through and all the pressures of exams and actually we need to really nurture her and feed her at this point because that's what's happening. And that's where the systemic issue lies, that's what I would argue, is that we get, we get trained to disconnect from what we're actually feeling inside ourselves and if that feels as though it's becoming too unbearable, it's kind of, it's, well, you're not good enough to be a doctor or you're not cut out to be a doctor. Um, there's, more, there's sort of that sort of almost gaslighting of the profession in that if you're someone who really cares and takes on things that you shouldn't do that. <laughs> like, well, you're a bad doctor because you take on people's yes. problems. And, you know, that's just being human in, <laughs> in my understanding. I think, I think that's slightly what's different about GPs' um, characteristics in many ways is that we, we're a bit more happy to be a, a human in the room with another human um, but then we're in a human that's alone in a system that sort of brought us up to be everything's okay and just keep going. Yeah, and I, I really do think for myself I, I didn't have that ability to tap in, as you said, Charlotte, with the fact that I was one of those empty bucket people. So it really felt it felt like it was coming out of just knocking me out of the blue. I was as surprised, well, I'm Actually, I was probably the only one that was surprised in hindsight, but I was really surprised that everything came to such a crushing halt. And it took me many, many months working with a psychologist. In fact, probably about four to six months before I actually stopped berating myself for having burnt out. <laughs> I spent all those, all that time with this, I shouldn't be doing this, how self-indulgent. There's so many people who are working harder than me. They've got much more trauma. There. And it was still crashing through that 
mentality of being the fixer of others, the healer of others, the helper of others, which was just so internalized within me that I actually didn't, I didn't know that that was so important to me because I was so, as a doctor, I was, I sort of prided myself on being the one, you know, that's Dr. Emily, that's not Dr. Amos. I was, I was always so, you know, patient centered and really empathetic and connecting with my patients. But really when it came down to it, I had identified that role of as being the helper of others and that put a huge roadblock in my way for accepting help when I did eventually need it. It's a great experience to then be able to share like you've been able to allow yourself to be vulnerable in terms of sharing that story now. But very powerful, I think, for also teaching the mindfulness and all the other things because, I mean, Ash, Beck and I often you know, try very hard to do some of our podcasts around the importance of well-being. But I think sometimes until there is that bit of a crash for some of us, it is hard to be able to actually highlight how important it is. And, of course, COVID has made that, I think... It's been a collective crash for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. It's lowered the levels Mm. for everybody. Mm. I mean, it's interesting to me that medicine in its art form is actually was grounded in real and very attuned noticing you know how do we diagnose we listen and we listen attentively we sense in ourselves if something doesn't quite feel right for us we examine somebody and we touch and we feel and we determine what the sensations are that we're feeling under our hands to give us information about diagnosis. And then we use all of that sensory information and incredible capacity to really attune to complex information, sift it through and then communicate it in a way that we intuitively know is going to be best for the person in front of us and to have that capacity requires a lot of these skills and the capacity to be there with people and even though general practice can be considered a really isolating profession it's also an incredibly relational profession in that we are with another person and often in very incredible different circumstances through their lives birth death sickness illness um, celebrations and our capacity to be able to do all of that in the medicine as its art form is actually a mindfulness practice or an embodied practice it is if we let it though I would argue that what what happens is that the pressures externally to see a certain number of people per hour, to see a number of people that we have to for access, to be under pressure to perform in a certain way or to fill out certain paperwork tasks or do the requirements of different item numbers, fulfil the needs of other people within the practice or system that we're working in, and move from one consultation to the next quickly without the the capacity to to pause and reflect and move on to be then again. So I would argue that it's actually 
heavily the system around us that prevents us from being able to use those skills that we actually do have inherently within us. You know, we, we inherently actually get trained in these skills of very fine attunement, very fine focus, and also the capacity to step back and see all of that in the bigger picture. We kind of, we're taught to do that as part of the way that we learn to diagnose, be with people, listen to people. We're not necessarily given the time and space to be able to do that very well. Yeah. And when I thought, so I think it's Astro Teller um, or Thomas Friedman talking to Astro Teller, who is the head of Google SpaceX, I think. And he talks about this idea that the, the human capacity for, for anything, for taking on new information is just far outstripped by the actual pace of technological advances. And I mean, I think of so many things that I learned in my medical degree that are now completely redundant you know there's diseases we can cure there's there's totally new treatment plans i went on maternity leave and all of a sudden there's a whole new treatment guideline for all sorts of chronic diseases it's just the constant pace of keeping up with the knowledge required to be a safe and competent doctor means that the mental space that's left (laughs) for human connection feels tiny and then when you take out the sort of I guess the core processing needs that you need to take out to have a family and to have friends and just to have a life outside of medicine, it means that something's got to give. The box that our brain sits in is, is finite. It's, we have to give ourselves permission at some point to not know something but know where to find it, to prioritise. If, if, if connection is something that is very important to us in our clinical interactions but it is incredibly draining, as you said, Charlotte, then maybe we need to find other ways to connect with our patients. Maybe it is things like shared medical appointments. Maybe there are other ways within medicine that we can support people to practice a form of medicine that is authentic to them, allows them to highlight their capabilities, but also means that they are supported. You know, if if it's a shared medical appointment and they've got a facilitator there, they've got a a practice nurse or they've got a physio, whoever's in there, it means that I don't actually have to be totally up with the latest advances in a very minute area. I could have a facilitator who actually has that as as their sort of core area of competence and then I can focus on how I build relationships within this group and how I help patients learn from each other this very didactic model of sitting in a room with one patient and always having the answers for that patient ready at the time it just doesn't leave a lot of capacity for much else outside of medicine I mean I'm not sure about you guys but that really depleted me well Emily I think that what you've just said there it brings us to sort of a natural end to our discussion today unfortunately we didn't hear much from Beck because she's had a storm and dropping in and out of today's recording. So, I mean, if she comes back on in time to talk about her clinical resource of the week, then she can she can speak there. Otherwise, we'll have the the host that never eventuated for this episode. <laughs> Do would you like to share Emily a resource or clinical tip for our listeners? I think a resource if you've got patients or you yourself are interested in getting into meditation in any way insight timer is completely free it's full absolutely jam-packed full of free meditations there's a timer on there you can log your meditations it's a nice way to just introduce yourself slowly to meditation but a clinical insight i guess around mindfulness is I'd really encourage your listeners to actually give themselves permission to not try and practice it perfectly. 
because that's really what I was very guilty of and I see really commonly in my meditation teaching now, this striving for perfection even in the practice of meditation and it's probably the antithesis of where you want to be when it comes to meditating. So if that's something that you feel applies to you, then probably seeking out a registered meditation teacher, which you can find through the Meditation Australia website. My meditation teacher who taught me wrote a book called Meditation Made Easy, which I think is a terrible name for a book. Sorry, Lauren, but it really turned me off because I was like, I don't need easy meditation. I want hard meditation. I want the gold standard. <laughs> exactly. Give me the, the hardest book and I'll do that. But having then subsequently read it, he has a whole section on mistakes that meditators can make and one of them is trying to meditate perfectly or meditate to achieve enlightenment, which I think both of those are sort of aligned together. So, so is that your resource for us, Ash, this week? No, can't I have two? <laughs> I just wanted to say, yeah, I totally agree with you, Emily. And, you know, self-reflecting as well, I think, 100%. Don't go for the hardest meditation book. And My resource of the week, which is the book Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention by Johan Hari. It's worth a read, very insightful, and I think for parents probably a real challenge to them in the current environment about decreasing screen time and trying to add back in some of the good old-fashioned activities of being a family that don't involve mobile phones, iPads, um, television screens or computers. You know, it's interesting because there have been such useful tools during COVID, but at the same time not useful because I think what we've ended up with is a whole lot more people with scattered brains. Definitely. My sneaky second resource of the week is called The Healthy Mind Platter. And it's by Dr. Dan Siegel, um, who's also written a book called The Mindful Therapist, which is a top read. That's not my other resource. <laughs> the resource is it looks at the healthy mind platter for optimal brain function. So it, it looks at different things that the mind needs throughout sort of life. And it's useful to consider how you're getting those things in your life that are on a daily basis that help to optimize brain matter and well-being. So it covers enough sleep, physical time, focusing time, time in, downtime, playtime and connection time. And it sort of talks about what all of those different things and how we can bring them in. Um, but it's a really, really useful tool and I use it a lot in clinical practice as well. That brings this episode to a close. Thank you so much, Emily, for coming and sharing your story so openly and authentically and honestly today. We will make sure that people can find you and the things that you do by linking in your stuff in our show notes. And thank you to our online and then offline again host, Beck. And show it.